If you have your Bibles, join me in Romans chapter 5. My father-in-law used to say, we're moving like a herd of turtles. We're going to finish this fifth chapter this morning. Romans chapter 5, follow along, verse 12 down through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We'll begin with prayer and then we'll look at this text together. Father in heaven, it is a joy to be named among those that have come under the gracious act of your Son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he was willing to make on behalf of us, making payment, full payment for sin, has ushered us into new life this day with you and eternal life and glory to come. We are grateful for this salvation, even as it is ministered to us. I think of Tim and Melissa as they say goodbye to their dad, but in reality, they are ushering him and watching him being ushered into the presence of his Savior. We rejoice together with them. Would your mercy and grace comfort. We also pray for a world in turmoil, nations that are in turmoil, even Israel that is facing uncertainty. We pray for those that have been affected by this, even those workers that have been sent out in your name. Protect. We pray that you open doors for the gospel and make them ready for whatever challenges they're going to face as well as making them ready to preach the hope that is within them. And also for us as well, here in these states, and seeing the turmoil and the the conflict within our own nation, prepare us as a church to speak truth in love, always to put Christ before us, and to offer him as the hope of mankind. As we take these moments of worship before you and in your presence and under the ministry of your spirit, Would you awaken our heart to the reality of what we have in Christ? And for some here today that may be listening, that are yet without Christ, 
that you would awaken their heart to the reality of what faith brings to them, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let these words and our time together in worship of your word this morning, worship of you through proclamation of Christ, profit not only our souls, but those that we minister to in Christ's name and for his glory. We pray this. Amen. Well, we are coming to these final verses in chapter 5, a section of God's word that I've said many times is regarded as one of the most difficult passages in the book of Romans, if not perhaps even the whole of scripture. And it's good to be reminded that Paul has taken the first significant part of this letter in the chapters leading up here to chapter 5 to address justification by faith apart from works, going to great lengths to show that both Jew and Gentile were in need of a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. And this was due to the inability of either being able to live in sufficient righteousness before God that he would approve man's works on a basis for divine acceptance. Paul has written, no man can live righteously before God, that God would accept them, Jew or Gentile. And the Jews themselves had put great confidence in their possession of and their practice of the law given to them through Moses as a means to be justified before God. And even the Gentiles could argue to some degree the law written on their hearts if they just lived by that law. Somehow God would approve, God would accept them, heaven would be theirs. Paul has written this letter to address these kinds of misconceptions or arguments that men have used to object to the gospel of God. And his point was firmly made that whether Jew or Gentile, all are under sin, none have any goodness in them to offer to God that God would accept. In chapter 5, having covered those issues of sin within all mankind, Paul turns to the subject of justification by faith apart from the works of man, which is a central doctrine, a central truth to the gospel of God. Now, it's largely agreed by many that the truths in this chapter are meant to give believers assurance, and we're going to come to that end at the end of this message. The believer's assurance is being built up by the doctrinal discussion that Paul is having here. Where the Judaizers... Or the legalists would have uncertainty God gives to us certainty in regard to our salvation. Man has a tendency, as we know, to find confidence in their own abilities, their own contributions, their own spiritual efforts in order to secure the approval of God. The first half of the chapter here provides the results, the blessings of justification by faith, causing the believer to rejoice again and again in the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. The second half of the chapter that we're now in explores the history of sin, taking us to the very root of Adam's transgression in the garden. And Paul is going to complete that discussion here in our study this morning. Paul's treatment of sin's history in humanity provides a much deeper problem in sinful depravity that finds all men under the curse of sin and death and therefore condemned by God. In bringing us back to the doctrine of justification as man's only hope, assurance is given to us of that hope being Christ alone. Christ alone. Verses 12 to 21 presents Adam as a type of Christ 
in a most unusual way. Both Adam and Christ are shown by Paul to represent humanity. Both have had a significant impact on humanity. And yet they are compared to each other through the contrast. We're going to see more of these contrasts this morning. But Adam is here representing us. He's the physical head of the human race. Jesus Christ is presented by Paul as the head of a new and a spiritual race. Adam's sin brought sin and death to all men, while Jesus Christ and his free gift of salvation brings justification and eternal life to all who believe. Paul contrasts what Adam did that affected humanity with what Jesus accomplished that has also affected humanity. We've already examined several of these contrasts, especially last week in verses 15, 16, and 17. In the verses before us, beginning verse 18 this morning, Paul continues with several more contrasts. And you can see them. Verse 18, condemnation contrasted with or versus justification. In verse 19, disobedience with the obedience of Christ. Verse 20, law versus grace. And verse 21, the reign of death versus the reign of life. These four contrasts will come up in our discussion this morning. But in presenting these additional views, Paul teaches the how and the why of justification, building even stronger, more firmly, our confidence in the assurance of being justified before God by faith. I will explore this presentation of justification by highlighting three words, and I want you to note them on your note sheet. You can follow along. Results, declarations, and kingdoms. Beginning in verse 18 and the results, Paul compares or contrasts yet again, comparing Christ with Adam through these contrasts, the result of Adam's one sin now with the results of the one act of righteousness, which is associated, you will note, with the gift in verse 17. The one act of righteousness is associated with the free gift of grace, as we saw in verse 17. This verse serves as a kind of summary. Verse 18 serves as a kind of summary to what has just been written in the previous verses. But it builds Paul's case for justification as a work of God that was fully accomplished apart from the works of men. In addition, many believe that where verse, seven, or verse 12 began to describe the contrast between Adam and Christ, Paul doesn't seem to complete that thought until we get to verse 18. And we've noted that before. Some scholars refer to this as several parentheses that Paul adds in between verse 12 and verse 18. But clearly he sees a need in verse 13 to begin to explain certain things that we need to understand before he actually completes that thought in verse 18. It is rather appropriate then that he opens verse 18 saying, So then, or therefore, letting us know that he's pulling his argument down to this summary statement. And if this is the case, that 18 serves as a summary statement on justification, then it also serves as something to a conclusion or a conclusionary thought, not only as to how we came into sin, but more importantly, how believers came to be justified. 
This is where we're going to explore Paul telling us this is the how and the why of justification by faith. He writes the result of the one transgression and compares it with the result of the one act of righteousness. Now the first part of this has already been considered from several different angles by Paul. The act of transgression that resulted in sin and death. We all came to be sinners and under the condemnation of death because of Adam and his one transgression in the garden. And because of that one act, all men have been born into sin and death. It's come to us all. This death is associated with the condemnation that God's word would declare as divine condemnation. Divine condemnation. God's judgment on humanity. And from that condemnation, we recognized in the past that death is not only physical, but it's a spiritual separation from God. And with that physical and spiritual death, there is also the eternal torment of a fiery hell that our sin deserves. Apart from Christ, all men and women are under this condemnation because all are under sin. And as been stated by Paul many times to this point, this condemnation is the result of Adam's one act of sin where he ate what God had told him not to eat. Paul then turns our attention to what has resulted from the one act of righteousness. And you can see the summary aspect of verse 18 and not only the summary, but how he's bringing this to a conclusion. First, we must again acknowledge what Paul means by all men. By the one transgression of Adam, all men, sin and death. The one act of righteousness, all men will live. With regard to Adam's sin, all men means all born of Adam's lineage. Paul presents Adam as the head of the human race, as a type of Christ, even as Christ is the head of the new race or those redeemed by his blood sacrifice condemnation to all men that includes everyone everyone but with regard to the one act of righteousness the all men who are justified by God are all who believe as chapter 5 and verse 1 has already clearly stated Paul is not advancing universalism here he's not saying because of the one act of Jesus Christ all men are saved because throughout the book of Romans as well as throughout the book of God's word there is judgment, there is eternal condemnation for those who do not trust Christ as their Savior. So when Paul says all men in verse 18, associated with the one act of righteousness, we know at once Paul is saying all men who what? Believe. All men who believe. It is absolutely correct for us to read verse 18 this way. Through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men born of Adam. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men born of Christ, which is by faith. All men born of Christ, which is by faith. Adding to this, the one act of righteousness is a reference to the saving ministry of the Savior Jesus Christ. But what does this specifically refer to? When Paul says, one act of righteousness, we understand he's referring to Jesus Christ. But what does he mean here? Is that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb? 
Was it his holy life or his righteous living that was offered in exchange for our sinfulness? Or was it the imputed righteousness of God on the believer that Christ merited for us on the cross? What does Paul mean by the one act of righteousness? I appreciate how John Murray addresses this question in his commentary on Romans, where he observes that Paul here offers a direct parallel between the one act of Adam that thrust all humanity into sin and death with the one act of righteousness which result in the believer's justification. This one act of righteousness then will be the ref a reference to the work of Christ. In some way, this is a reference to the work of Christ. His sacrificial atonement for the sins of his people. Murray suggests that the righteousness of Christ is regarded in, note, its compact unity. It'd be good to write down those two words because I'm going to reference it again in just a few moments. The compact unity of Christ. In other words, the act of righteousness noted in verse 18 is both the holy living of Jesus Christ in his humanity while he was on this earth as well as his substitutionary sacrifice for our sins which made possible the imputed righteousness of Christ for believers. The one act of righteousness could be a reference then to the full work that Jesus Christ did for his people when he came to this earth. He lived the perfect righteous life. Then he offered himself up as the spotless, what? Lamb of God for the sins of his people. This, I believe, is what Paul means by that one act of righteousness. It is the result of this one act of of righteousness that provide the result that all of us need as sinners. That is, to stand in the presence of God, declared justified by Him because of what the life and death of Jesus Christ accomplished for us. And this only comes by faith. In this sense, and only in this sense, can we say that we have been saved by works. Not our works, but by the works of the Savior. Only in that sense can we say we have been saved by works. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, we come to him by faith alone. The result is justification of life, Paul writes in verse 18. God declares the believer to be justified in his presence, not because of any work we have done, but because of the works of righteousness done by Christ. It is often said that God declaring the believer justified is to say that God is treating us just as if we'd never sinned and has now declared the, the sinner innocent of all charges against them. And in truth, the believer is treated by God. The believer is treated by God as if they had never sinned. Yet it's not entirely correct to say that any one of us have been found innocent before God. And we can picture ourselves standing before the throne of God's judgment in the courtroom of heaven. How is it that God has declared us justice, justified? Is it because he's looked at our lives and said, well, they've been pretty splendid in how they behaved. I'll let the, in, I'll let the indiscretions go because they've been a pretty decent citizen. We know that is not the case. The only reason we're standing before the throne of God and he declares any one of us justified 
is because he's looked at us and said, there is a vile sinner, but they've trusted the work of my son. They're not innocent, but I will declare them justified as if they're innocent because the blood of my son covers. His righteousness is placed onto their account. The charges against us because of our sins, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, were nailed to the cross of Christ, canceling out the certificate debt that was against us. So we stood before the judgment seat of God, guilty, but he declared us innocent based on the work of Christ on our behalf. When a sinner repents and puts their faith in the righteous work of Christ, God declares that guilty sinner no longer guilty. They're declared justified because of the cross. And the phrase that we read here in verse 18 is justification of life. We've been justified of life. Now, Paul does not mean justification which, which consists of life, but justification which itch, issues forth into eternal life for the believer. Justification that brings us into eternal life and the glory of God. The moment a sinner puts their faith and trust in Christ, at that moment they enter into life with God. We were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but by the mercy of God, we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. I stand before God to this day, alive in Christ. And the day will come when I leave this life and I will enter into eternal life in the glory of God's presence. This is justification of life. In Adam, we were dead. In Christ, we are made alive and destined to live with him for his glory and in his glory for eternity. And in this way, the believer is treated as innocent when once they were guilty. They're declared fully justified by God because of the one act of righteousness found only in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk more on that one act in just a moment. But the result that Paul says of this work of Christ is now accomplished for his people, justification of life. And this brings us to verse 19. We're going to consider two more contrasts in the declarations made by God here. Paul goes further to explain this resulting justification of life here in verse 19 that he's just talked about in verse 18. Notice the word for. At the beginning of the sentence, for as through one man. Paul is now going to explain something of what he meant in verse 18. Two declarations are contrasted here that help explain how we came to be justified by God. One declaration comes from Adam's disobedience. The other comes from the obedience of God's Son. Paul is about to explain to us how, as believers, we have come out from under condemnation, which came to us by the one act of Adam, and we've entered it into justification of life, which has now come to us by the one act of Jesus Christ. And to help explain this to the church, Paul contrasts Adam's disobedience over and against the obedience of Christ. And in one sense, this explains more fully what John Murray said when he spoke of a compact unity. In other words, the act of righteousness seen in Jesus Christ can be understood by his obedience. It helps us understand the act of righteousness, when we look at the obedience of Christ. Now, we fully appreciate what Paul means by the disobedience 
of Adam by this time. It was when he ate the forbidden fruit, disregarding the direct command of God. It was from this one transgression that many were, note, made sinners. Note that expression. That's a declaration. Verse 19 contrasts that disobedience with the obedience of Christ by which many others were, note again, made righteous. In support of the idea of this compact unity that we just noted, the obedience of Jesus Christ then could easily reference his obedient life as well as his obedient sacrifice, his obedient death, because both are essential to provide the justification of sinners. In other words, it was essential that Jesus came to this earth and lived in sinlessness before God. It was also essential that he died to make sacrifice for the sins of his people, if any of us are going to be justified. Now, scholars refer to this obedience of Christ in two senses. The first is the active obedience of Christ. The second is the passive obedience obedience of Christ. If you're filling down your note sheets, I've left those blanks for you because it's important for us to understand when the, Paul is writing about the obedience of the Son of God, he's talking about the active obedience of Jesus Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Jesus actively obeyed when he lived in perfect holiness and sinlessness before God when he came to this earth and lived among us as a man. His passive obedience was his willingness to submit to suffering and death on the cross, to be punished, to make full payment for the sins of his people. When he willingly surrendered his life, giving up his spirit to make full payment for sin. We read that Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of the law, the law that no man was able to keep. And to help us with this, if you would turn back to Matthew chapter 5, the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus taught Christ taught us a little bit about his coming to this earth. In Matthew chapter 5, and you can follow along in verse 17 down through verse 20, where Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is rather clear from this that Jesus intended to live in such a way that he fully fulfilled the requirements of God's law. Further, he would make sure that every promise, every prophecy, every uh, declaration of the Lord would also be accomplished. And though he came to represent fallen humanity, notice he expected even the least of God's commands to be taught and to be obeyed, such that no one will enter heaven unless their righteousness surpasses the Pharisees. The Pharisees were extremely religious. They were zealous to keep the law. But Jesus condemned their righteousness because they fell short 
of the glory of God. So the Lord's meaning here was that perfection in righteousness is required, and none of us can do that. Not a single one of us can do that. That's why he came. He came to fulfill for us what we could never fulfill. He came to provide for us the righteousness that we could never live. One of the most curious acts of fulfillment and that marked the ministry of Jesus Christ, marked the beginning of his ministry, took place on the Jordan River, on the bank of the Jordan, when Jesus came to be baptized by John. If you will back up one passage, or one page, maybe one chapter, two chapters to Matthew chapter 3. There was a day that Jesus opened his ministry, his public earthly ministry, by coming to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And you can almost picture there on the bank of the Jordan River a line of people that are coming to John. John's ministry given to him by God was to prepare the way of the Lord. And here he is preparing the way of the Lord by calling God's people to repent of their sins and turn to the Messiah that God had promised to send. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 14. Here comes Jesus, and John is troubled by this. And he says to Jesus, I see you're here to be baptized by me. I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me John knew that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. People calling or confessing their sins to God and saying, I want to change. I want to turn my life over. I want to confess and repent, turn back to the ways of God. At some level, John knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. At some level, he knew he had no sin to confess. So what is Jesus doing there, standing in line, waiting to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? I have need to be baptized by you, John says, and you're coming to me. Jesus had no sin to repent of. So the question is, why did Jesus come to John to be baptized for repentance when he had no sin? Jesus answers in verse 15, but I have to confess it doesn't clear things up for me. Jesus said, permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's that word righteousness again. This is going to mark my ministry, Jesus said. I have come here to fulfill all righteousness. I've come to do what man can't do for themselves. Now, many have wrestled with the meaning in the Lord's response here. But this much is clear. Jesus was telling John that he came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to walk in righteousness as directed by his father. He came to accomplish all that the father had given him to do. And this would provide the righteousness that his sinful people needed of him. Included in this was how he must represent his people. When he took their sin upon himself on the cross, he endured their, our condemnation. He was punished by God the father for their, our sins. The Lord's baptism in some sense marked the beginning of his earthly ministry for his people that would climax at the cross. Now I want to bring up on the screen, or the guys will bring up on the screen, a quote by Harry Ironside, and I think he comes as close to helping us understand what is behind the Lord Jesus Christ being baptized in repentance. And Harry Ironside sees that day when Christ 
came to John on the Jordan River for this act as a manifestation of his kingship. The day arrived at last for the manifestation of the king there on the banks of the Jordan River. And Jesus appeared in the throng, and you can picture him standing in line, waiting to be baptized, and he steps forward to undergo the rite to which so many confessed sinners had submitted. He who was to take the sinner's place came to be baptized of John, that he might thereby be identified with sinners for whom he was to lay down his life as the one who was to make himself responsible to satisfy every righteous claim for those who owned that they were justly under the curse of the violated law, and so with no righteousness of their own. That's kind of a wordy last sentence. But what Ironside is saying is that Jesus is there to represent his people who are sinners. He is not. He's not there to be baptized for his own repentance. He's there representing somebody else. It is true that Jesus had no sin of his own, whereby he would baptized in repentance by John. But the day would come, would it not, when the sins of God's people would be laid on Christ as he's nailed to the cross and lifted up before men. He would carry their sins. He would suffer. He would atone for. He would be punished for the sins of others. And therefore, his baptism of repentance was not for his own sin, but for the sins of those that he would represent on Calvary. And in this way, Jesus submitted in obedience to the will of the Father. He was declaring to John and all the others, I am here to represent my people. I will live in perfect righteousness that they could never do. And I'm going to one day carry their sins. And in this way, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father as the only righteous one who could do so. Paul captures this thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where he says, He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. He who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That is one of the great mysteries of the cross, that the sinless, righteous Son of God became what? Became sin for us so that the sinner might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, where he writes that the many will be made righteous. The sinner made righteous. And that word made, going back to chapter 5 and verse 19, we were made sinners through Adam, made righteous through Christ. That word made means we are now constituted as righteous. We are put into the category of the righteous. We are judiciously regarded as righteous. That's why I've used at the top of this heading, a declaration has been made. We were declared sinners in Adam. We are declared righteous in Christ. Why? Because of his obedience. Obedience in his life, obedience in his death. Obedience to fulfill the law, but his obedience to carry our sin because we couldn't fulfill the law. 
In Adam, we're all declared sinners. In Christ, we are declared righteous. In Adam, because of his disobedience, we are made to be sinners even before we had committed a sin. Even in the womb, we were sinners before we had ever done an act of sin. But in Christ, by faith in his atoning sacrifice, we are declared righteous even though we have not acted in righteousness. Because Jesus lived in full obedience before God, the believer in Christ is taken out of the category of sinners and we are placed into the realm of the righteous. That's what justification is. And this is how Paul is going into the deeper understanding of what has taken place when the gavel in heaven has come down and declared any one of you, any one of us, as justified. And this brings us to verse 20 and 21 and the close of this chapter. Two more contrasts as Paul instructs the church on the deeper doctrines, explaining to us this amazing doctrine of justification by faith. Verse 20 speaks of law versus grace. That's one contrast. Verse 21 contrasts the reign of death with the reign of life. And from this mindset, Paul identifies two very different kingdoms that we're going to look at this morning in these two verses. And this further instructs us on the how and the why of justification. Paul begins with the law in verse 20, noting again his past instruction to the misconception of the Jews of what God's law was intended to accomplish. The Jews held that their possession, their keeping of the law, their relationship to Adam, the promises that God made, I'm not, sorry, not Adam, but Abraham, their relationship to Abraham and the promises that God made to Abraham, that meant they were rightfully members of the kingdom of God. They were already justified because of it. Paul has methodically exposed this error as he established from the Old Testament scripture, going back to chapter 3, using the Psalms to declare all of us are unrighteous. There isn't a single one of us that have done good. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile, Paul argues. He then takes the church further back in history as we move into chapter 5, the history of Adam. Adam who has led all humanity into sin and death. And you look again at verse 13 and 14. Paul notes that even where the law of God was not given, men were still under sin and death. If after, if after all this discussion of the Jews and the law, someone might ask, what then good was the law? What purpose did it serve? Why did God even give the law if it couldn't justify and here in verse 20, Paul builds on what he's already written by telling us the law was given so that the transgression would increase. The law was never intended to provide salvation to sinners. Old Testament salvation by faith is the same in the New Testament. Paul has already established this when he wrote of Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him for what? Righteousness. He believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this was before the law was ever given. God made that declaration of Abraham. God knew that when he gave the law, men could not keep it. John MacArthur writes, God gave the law through Moses as a pattern of righteousness, but not as a means of righteousness. A pattern of righteousness but not as a means of righteousness. Where Paul now adds that the law was given 
so that the transgression would increase, he means when God gave the law, it magnified sin. It made sin more visible. It made sin more clear. It made sin even more offensive. Think about all the laws that were given through Moses and the animal sacrifices, the grain sacrifices, the drink offerings, the festivals, all the requirements of the law. It is meant to show how offensive sin is to God. Where the laws of God were written on the hearts of men, now his law is written in a very clearly defined and display so that none can mistake how vile the acts of men are to God. The transgression increased then in visibility. It increased in offensiveness when God wrote this law out and gave it to man. And in addition, now that man has possession of God's law, when man violates that law, his guilt before God is even greater. Before the law was given, men could say, well, I didn't really know. Now that the law is here, man has no excuse. He has no excuse other than open rebellion against the Lord. Yet the point in telling us this in verse 20 Why the law was given is to show that where sin increased, notice, the grace of God abounds all the more. In other words, what happened when God gave his law? It magnified sin. It told us just how bad sin is. Here comes grace. It abounds all the more because God is saying, I will take care of all of it for you. The sacrifice of my son was going to take care of all of the sin, death, and misery. Paul says that the law has made our sin far more visible and offensive. It tells us just how vile sin is to God. Without this law, men would minimize this sin. The law exposes it for the wickedness that it is. But God's grace is set over and against the law to show us that what the law could never do, God did for us by his unmerited favor. The references to grace here in verses 20 to 21 reflect back on the grace gift that we saw in verse 15, 16, and 17. And that's been identified as the one act of righteousness already by Jesus Christ. And if the law made sin greater, then the grace of the cross that forgives and justifies that greater sin is even far more abounding in grace and greatness, Paul says. And Paul again uses that super abounding word, It is superabounding grace, describing this grace gift of salvation by faith in Christ. And this further explains what Paul is saying about justification. And he's going to expand on this in verse 21 with the language of kingdoms. Notice what he says, so that, in other words, he's going to go on to explain, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I have really appreciated how James Montgomery Boyce presented this in his commentary. He builds on Paul's view of two kingdoms, two rival kingdoms that are presented in this verse. And in Boyce's analogy, the first kingdom associated with Adam has a reigning king named Sin. King Sin has entered into humanity. The second king is associated with Jesus Christ and is ruled by King Grace. The first king under King Sin invaded our world following creation and has a powerful hold on the world whose end is death. His reign will only bring death 
But King Grace enters humanity with the intention of saving men from sin and death. And his end is going to bring eternal happiness and peace. Boyce then goes on to share that Paul's kingdom presentation shows grace in a different light than probably we have ever considered. I was recently hearing from an individual claiming to be a believer who's being confronted in their sin but demanding grace. They want to be treated with grace with the idea of wanting a softer and a gentler treatment of their sin. And this is very often, I think, our view of grace. It's soft, it's understanding attitude that will not confront my sin, sometimes will minimize my sin, sometimes ignore my sin, or even dismiss, or perhaps even reward my sin. That can be our understanding of grace. Boyce then gives this description of grace, if we can bring that up. He says, it is a power that reaches out to save those who apart from the power of grace would perish. He's seen grace as a powerful force. And he sees that coming into the kingdom that is ruled by sin. Here comes King Grace. It is a powerful invader. Now it's true that grace is the unmerited favor of God to those who believe. Remember Psalm 103. We have not been treated as we deserve. Grace for us came at a very high price though, didn't it? God's unmerited favor required violence to his son. Grace for us came at a very high price. God would see his own son tormented, rejected, beaten, and sent away to be executed on a cross in order to extend his forgiving favor to his people. He would require that his son be punished for our sins. God would turn his own wrath against his son while he hung on the cross bearing our sins, and he demanded of his son death as the final payment for the sin that we had committed, a death that we deserved, but his son had to experience. And in this sense, grace is more than a soft, gentle attitude. It is a powerful force that went to war against sin and death. And as Boyce continues to write, To use the illustration of the two rival kingdoms, it would be possible to say that grace is an invasion by a good and legitimate territory that has been usurped by another. King King Sin entered in and usurped. But here comes King Grace. It is a powerful, invading force. And I think this is a good illustration of Paul's two kingdoms because the, the reign of King Grace, you will note, is a reign of righteousness. It is accomplished through righteousness. Jesus Christ came and lived that righteousness for us. And the act of substitutionary atonement was the righteousness of Christ to exchange our sin for his righteousness on us. Grace has brought victory to sinners through that righteousness. But not only that, grace will continue to reign through the righteousness of Christ A people that going back to verse 19 says have been made righteous by Christ. Verse 19, we have been made righteous by Christ. So we have been put into the category of God's righteousness. This work of God begins the moment a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ and it will take that person to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord as verse 21 reads. Where grace is concerned, 
We do not deserve to have our sins forgiven. We do not deserve to be made the righteousness of God. We do not deserve to escape eternal punishment or to gain eternal life. Nor do we deserve to be declared justified by God. We don't deserve to be brought into a kingdom of righteousness where Jesus Christ is now our Lord. We do not deserve the favor of his sanctifying work in our lives that prepares us for glory with him. We do not deserve to have the word of God and the spirit of Christ or the convicting ministry of the church, the spirit-gifted church, to rebuke our sin and to call us back to righteousness when we stray. God's grace can be a soft touch that we do not deserve but it is also a powerful force that brings us back to and holds us in the righteousness of Christ. We don't deserve forgiveness and restoration, but neither do we deserve the strong rebuke of God's word or the sorrow of his chastening hand when he sees one of his children prefer sin over his righteousness. Do you see grace differently in this presentation? It's what we don't deserve, to be sure. But it isn't merely a soft attitude. It is a powerful force that takes sinners out of their sin and places us under King Grace. In truth, another name for King Grace is King Jesus. And the reign of Jesus Christ's grace will not only bring us into righteousness, it's going to keep us there as well. Now, just some thought and meditation this morning. How do we respond? As we looked at last week, we brought three responses. I want to introduce, again, three responses. How do we respond to this justification of God, as Paul's been teaching us? Our assurance being given here because of the great work of salvation should inspire us in some way. So consider justification, as Paul's taught, and the assurance that it brings to us, this also inspires a witness, number one, in our witness. It inspires us to witness for Christ. Assurance of our justification and those that we witness to. If we have been aroused in our assurance because of this justification, then it gives us a confidence in witnessing for Christ. What drove Paul in his gospel witness? You think about the suffering, the abuses, the rejection, the beatings, the imprisonments. What drove this man to go on these missionary journeys and to continue to preach the gospel against all this opposition? It was the assurance that he had in his justification. God saves all who trust in the work of his son. Paul had been raised up out of his Jewish mindset of justification by works. And he'd been transformed into a different kingdom by Christ. He came to understand the doctrinal error where sinners lack assurance because of their own works. This is an assurance that sinners cannot be saved of themselves. The justification of God teaches us you can't have confidence in your own works. So like Paul, we don't know who God is going to draw to his son to be saved. We don't know those. But the assurance of justification by faith and the work that Christ has accomplished gives confidence in our gospel witness that salvation is not an ambiguous work with the Lord. It is through the witness of the church God will most certainly save the ones that he calls. 
The assurance of our justification is then the assurance of our witness to others that when a sinner believes, God will justify. When a sinner believes, God will justify. We just need to get the message out. But my assurance in justification is also the assurance of those that will be saved through our preaching, our proclamation of the gospel. We don't know who those are, but we do know the work of God. He will justify all who believe. Secondly, we see the assurance in our obedience, following the perfect example of the Savior. Look at what Jesus Christ accomplished for us because of his obedience to the Father. It is by the Savior's obedience to the Father that all righteousness was fulfilled, and it was done so on our behalf. As believers, we are the recipients of that righteousness. Our response of faith is an obedience response to the summons of the gospel itself. The law of God does not save, but it does give us the pattern of righteousness that we are to walk in. Living in grace does not mean that we no longer are concerned about the law of the Lord. We have been saved by the righteousness of Christ to walk in the righteousness of Christ. We've been saved by the righteousness of Christ to walk in the righteousness of Christ. So assurance of justification produces obedience, an attitude of obedience. And with that, number three, comes an attitude of submission. Submission, very close to obedience. But this is an attitude of the heart that surrenders to the will of our king. Notice verse 21 again. Jesus Christ is our what? Lord. There's a new reign here. We are under the reign of sin. Now we are under the reign of Christ, the reign of grace. So along with obedience, a true believer surrenders in submission to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. We're a people of grace to be sure. But as Paul writes here, grace reigns through righteousness. And this attitude of submission is now the heart of any true believer. Submission to the lordship of his righteous reign. And this will do several things for us. Number one, this kind of submission and surrender to the righteous reign of Christ motivates our service to Christ in his church. It motivates us to serve Christ. If he is our Lord, we see him in this way. It's going to stir our hearts to serve Christ and his church. Secondly, it's going to secure our trust in his sovereign rule over us and his care for us. It's going to secure our trust. We're going to trust this Lord. We know what he's done for us, how he's justified us by his sacrifice on the cross, his life of righteousness, and that now I've been made that righteousness in Christ. It secures our trust in him. He is the Lord that rules. He he conquered sin and death. So now we trust his reign. We trust his care for us. And third, it provides satisfaction in his reign. If we're secure in that trust, and if we're motivated to serve him, it's going to provide for us this, this assurance of our justification, provides satisfaction in his reign, which produces joy, contentment, and gratitude. It produces joy, contentment, and gratitude. Are you satisfied with the reign of Christ? And number four, when we see the reign of Christ, it inspires our worship of him. We've had a chance to do that this morning, but it's not just what we do here, is it? It's going all week long to worship Christ. 
to worship him, to give him our love, our adoration. We're inspired to obey him. We're inspired to submit to him. But we are inspired as well to worship him. Father in heaven, Paul has given us a very thorough and deep treatment of justification by faith apart from works. He's taken us into the very workings of the Savior, his life of righteousness, and his sacrifice of righteousness, so that the sinner, once under condemnation, can now be declared the righteousness of God and justified by him. We've come out of death, and we recognize now we enter into life. We give praise to you this morning because of this work. Father, it's our desire that you would stir within the hearts of some here today that maybe haven't believed to see the glory of the cross of your son and the value of putting your faith and trust in him because sinners are taken out of death and they're brought into life. Thank you for this precious gift. Thank you for Christ our Savior. And thank you, Father, for loving sinners. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.